morning. We're recording in the morning. We are recording in the morning. That's it's thrown me off a little bit. Like I had to <laughs> I had to do something horrible that I hadn't done in many years, or I had to commute today. <laughs> which you commute was, every time we record this podcast. Yeah, but it's, in the afternoon I can like you know do my four hours of preparatory meditation it takes anytime I get in the car. Sure. Um, this time I did not get that. So I was like sitting in traffic, you know, listening to like drive time radio, <laughs> swearing at the trucks next to me. It was you actually, didn't even, it was a slice of a different life. Yeah. You didn't even come in with super mom's coffee. I know. I hate, I drank like a pot of it myself at home. So I was like, I, I should not be excessive. Oh. Let's not go overboard here, folks. But you, but you had to commute. I know. I look, I regret it already. We're one minute into this episode, and I'm mad I don't have a cup of coffee. But I'm it, only on my second cup of tea, if that helps. It's nice out. Uh, finally, it's pleasant here in the Twin Cities. I'm going to try to get into like drive time. Drive time mode. We're just here for your commute, folks. Welcome. Um, now, it's... I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little thrown off by the morning. We'll see how this goes. Maybe well, we can make it a regular fixture, the morning recording. Let's 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 not get, let's, let's not get hasty. Uh, but why don't you start this episode? Maybe <laughs> that's a good to, place to I've start. Ne- <laughs> <laughs> I've never had the I've never had the opening demanded of me before, but I guess we'll start. Yeah. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name, Eric Hain. With me as always, Laura Sats. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, um, it's Eric. It's what, May 7th? It is May, May 7th. 8th, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, wow, you really are not a morning person. I'm actually a terrific morning person. But you're not I just like, like an in-person in person morning is what, person. This is what, yeah, this is what I do in the mornings. And it's the best part of my day, and everything after it is downhill. I just go, I've got this office in our basement, right? And I just go down there, and I keep the lights off, and I turn all my connective devices off and I just sit down there and I write or read for some for like three hours before like I, from like six to nine right and then I you know and then I'm ready to face the day and today today I got to do some of that but you've cut me off by making me come here I'm crabby about it you the listener have done this to me I'm crabby at you no. um no 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 we're all very friendly here um, anyway, we've got a really good show for you today, actually. We're going to talk about a few different interesting things. We've got a funny and good to loon at the end. Um, but before we get to any of that good things, um, man, that wasn't a grammatical sentence. Um, how about the basic rundown? Please, someone else talk. I'm struggling over here. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm, liking, yeah. I'm liking that you're just floundering. Yeah. Um, it feels really good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it is the start of the month, which means we have three special episodes coming for you. Um, that's less aggressive than it sounds. It it they're they're more there for you to peruse or not at your leisure, and hopefully they will help you with your writing endeavors. We have as as always our query show, and then our first pages show, and then we have a third flex episode. Um, and we had a really good suggestion from a listener last month about doing an episode on the call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a request for this flex episode, we haven't planned it yet because we're only one week in. So. <laughs> it's not May 29th yet, guys. It's not <laughs> May 29th yet. So definitely uh, send us your suggestions, yeah. your queries, your your Toluna make concerns, your first pages mm-hmm. to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So, issue number one of the day. 
Um, we've got some copyright stuff we to do look at, huh? have some copyright stuff on may 1st um a few different representatives of the you know in the u.s house of representatives you know lawmakers and whatnot introduced a act called the copyright alternative in small claims enforcement act of 2019 also known as the case act which mm-hmm. is much catchier i like that they stuck to the acronyms they could have done something yeah. that like wasn't wasn't nearly neat <laughs> but i like the idea of like a court case having an act su- supported that's also yeah. called case yeah. i appreciate that that is nice um so basically what this act is doing um is it is creating a set of small claims courts mm-hmm. um this is for you know small time creators, you know, the middle class or the lower class type of creators, the people that don't have legal departments behind them, um, to take people to small claims court if they infringe on their copyright. And, you know, the damages can go up to $30,000. But basically, the Association of American Producers and the Authors Guild kind of backed this um, backed this act up. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's um, it's kind of seen as a pro writer move. You know, if you're an individual creator or, you know, a small, you know, a smaller entity with some intellectual property, you know, this sort of presents a way for you to press a claim in a way that maybe wasn't necessarily possible. Like the kind of the fundamental underlying this is that it's really expensive to take people to court. And this is a way to do that. Um, you know, you seeing here, you know, I'm reading here, we've got, a, you know, there's a really good publishing perspectives article, which is kind of what we're pulling from here. But, um, you know, you've got a lot of different um, of the kind of the trade unions and the guilds, you know, in the industry that are involved. I mean, Romance Writers of America is into this, uh, National Writers Union, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Like people are, you know, largely this is supportive. Um, it's interesting because when I first saw this, maybe it's because I'm like, there's like a rain cloud above my head at all times. But the first thing I thought when I saw something like this was, wow, people are going to, there's going to be a lot of bad faith abuse of this sort of accessibility to, you know, court procedures. And that is actually um, something that is brought up as sort of a, a respectful disagreement here from people like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You know, they basically have said, you know, this cr- also creates an environment for copyright trolls, right? Like people who, sort of use these sorts of processes as a means of just, you know, I mean, you know, we've seen it. Like, people will press copyright, you know, superfluous copyright claims. It's just, you know, and oftentimes they will win because sometimes it just sucks to fight in court, you know. And, and you or you can, you know, run up against someone who isn't either informed or equipped or able to kind of handle it. And they'll just, you know, like, sometimes it's just easier to not do it. And... Um, so that exists as a possibility here, but where I think I land is that that's always, you know, there's always going to be abuses like that. I do think that this is a positive step. I think there are always going to be, you know, you know, bad faith abuses of leeways you give to individuals, you know, like there's always going to be crap like that. So you've, but you have to find people's rights anyway. And so like, you know, there's a line here from, um, you know, the Authors Guild executive, her name is Mary Rassenberger. And she, you know, she kind of says, a right without a remedy is no right at all. And I think that I think that I buy that in this case. Like, if you're going to give people the right to a copyright, you have to give them accessible means to enforce that. And um, I don't know. So I guess by and large, this seems like a good step. It's another, obviously, you know, we try to focus on these sorts of author rights things um, and author collective action stuff. And this feels like a nice step in that direction. So yeah, in the time of 
you know, big clothing companies stealing prints or images from small time creators. And, you know, there. how many times have you seen on like Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook people saying, you know, this big company stole my Mm -hmm. stole my stole my design or stole my work or stole my words and the only thing to do about it is to get that is to raise that public awareness that this happened um so i'm excited to see you know maybe maybe that if if this act passes there will be a little bit more of a david and goliath situation that will happen more and more you know i'm i'm excited about especially what with amazon's kindle unlimited and book stuffing and a lot of um you know in in the book realm a lot of plagiarism in in those kind of murky corners of Mm amazon.com um i'm excited to see remedies there also because we don't always have your book being plagiarized alongside nora roberts um and able to bring a class action lawsuit i like the i actually like the cap on it too because it does sort of it does keep it as a, a route for smaller creators right like this isn't something that a big um you know you know, IP holder can use as a, you know, it's something for and designed for people with smaller claims just as a means of kind of enforcing their their rights. So I think that's yeah. good. So speaking of the little guys, <laughs> um, this was a good thing. Um, but something else was announced this week. Um, whereas if, if you don't work in publishing, you probably haven't heard of it. Or if you have heard of it, you don't really understand the implications mm-hmm. there. Um, but Baker and Taylor announced that they are ceasing retail distribution. Yeah. So what Oof. that means, to, to back up a little bit, um, there are the, – the way that book, book distribution works is it's wholesale, right? Like mm-hmm. you have your – individual publishers or distributors, you know, who work with warehouses. Um, and then those those like distributor slash warehouses work directly with wholesalers. Um, there used to be even five years ago, three, three years ago, there used to be a lot of different wholesalers um, in the United States. Ingram has bought them all up. And the last holdout was Baker and Taylor. Mm -hmm. And so Ingram had, and I don't have the exact numbers, but was very, very close to a a monopoly. And the only reason that Baker and Taylor was holding out is, you know, reasons that we're going to talk about very, very soon. Um, Baker and Taylor shutting down retail distribution means that there is now a monopoly in book distribution. Mm -hmm. So other than like monopolies being bad, (laughs) right? right? Um, To... This this directly impacts independent bookstores over most things. So yeah, it's a breakdown for me, like why, like is and you, how you this know works. This stuff really, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like kind of, you know, talk us through, you know, how this can end up being having one place to get wholesale. You know yeah. how how that ends up affecting you know yeah. stores and and maybe even affecting prices down the yeah, line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Basically, the way wholesales work, if you you know if you don't work in retail or you haven't really thought about it before, um, e- retailers will buy product at a discount off the retail price, and then they'll turn around and they'll you know sell the retail price. So usually that discount is somewhere between forty and fifty percent on no matter what your product is, right? And then you have that um, extra fifty percent of theoretical profit will cover. Um, employee wages and it'll cover the brick and mortar store it'll cover all of the things that you know 
you need to run a store. Um, so Baker and Taylor get, gave um, gave retailers a 43% discount on their books. Mm-hmm. So 43% off. Um, and now the only option for bookstores is Ingram, which offers 40%. So that like 3% discount um, is a big deal, right? Yeah. And so now that 43% is gone, leaving bookstores with two options. You have Ingram at 40% or you can work directly with um the publisher. You can work directly with the publisher, yeah. which really only makes sense with the big 5. So you see a lot of announcements in Publishers Lunch or Publishers Marketplace, for example, that say, you know, this small independent um publisher is now being distributed by Penguin Random House, for example. Mm-hmm. Um and so that allows for a 45% discount for retailers. So now um, Baker and Taylor was great because it was that really beautiful middle ground for smaller creators. Mm -hmm. Um, And most bookstores, most indie bookstores, you know, that, that small percent really means that now with the difference between 40% off from Ingram and 45% off from like, the big five, um, really small niche books are going to cost 9% more Mm -hmm. than the big publisher, the big published books. So what that means is that indie bookstores, particularly who already have, you know, very, very, very thin margins are most likely going to be taking fewer chances on new publishers and, you know, new experimental books. And it's basically like what what this is going to do is it's going to have a homogenizing trickle effect um, from from the distribution all the way to what you see on the shelves. Yeah, no, I mean, so it sounds, you know, just kind of synthesize what you gave us there. Like bookstores are now it's now less attractive to buy from, you know, smaller niche presses it's more it's less attractive to do anything other than continue to keep buying from the big five which that's the most attractive option so if we connect that then to something else we talk about a lot which is that um you know especially major publishing is sort of stratifying into big authors and small authors yep like this feels like a real kind of it's at a different point in the chain but kind of an exacerbation of that same trend you know like suddenly you have um like, if publishers are already, you know, behaving in such a way that where there's either no advance for a small author or huge money for a known quantity, like mm-hmm. a celebrity author, and now it's tougher for indie bookstores to buy from presses that aren't doing that, it just feels to me like, I don't know, I guess maybe, maybe what I want to say is like, when was the last time you and I did one of these stories was like, yeah, this is going to be good for... The mid- <laughs> for publishing. For like this the middle ground of... Of publishing for like the you know just the mid the mid list you know like this feels like a bad mid list thing yeah. again and at least maybe not within uh, um, because obviously it's still just as easy to buy mid list books from the big five but if you look at the large publishing landscape like that kind of middle ground book it feels I don't know it, it just feels like this might be a problem so I guess as with any of this stuff we'll see what kind of pops up in a response maybe someone will have some sort of solution but. Um, I don't know. It seems like a trend that is not in the direction that we would be hoping yeah, for. Yeah, it's not ideal. I mean, maybe this means that instead of 
indie bookstores cultivating relationships with small or local publishers that are very like niche and mission focused mm-hmm. maybe they'll be focusing more on the mid-list authors of the big five yeah you um, gotta hope. I mean, which which it... is like a good thing theoretically but the trade-off i don't believe is 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 worth it um because while it might make that mid-list author a little bit more money and it might kind of in in tiny tiny ways push the big publishers mm-hmm. towards Um, diversifying their own lists like what it does is it makes it harder for new publishers to crop up it makes it harder for um, people to publish kind of in in niche markets yeah and it's just kind of all around i am not super enthused um i don't love love the idea of ingram being able to set the prices yeah on on the almost all of the books in the entire publishing world yeah um and we wonder why amazon takes over for something like this yeah you know like we wonder why amazon is taking over and we blame the consumer and the ease but this is a huge part of it i think this is a much i think that part about blaming the consumer is a great point because this is a much bigger deal than any buying habit you or i have with regard to how we purchase books you know what i mean like it's you see so much so much of this scolding you know online from people who are like well you know you guys all love you know book stuff and you all love publishing but none of you will cancel your prime accounts or none of you will you know do things like shop elsewhere and yeah on a personal ethic personal ethical level there's a point there but like this is where it's happening yeah you know what i mean like this is this kind of thing is a much bigger deal than any personal choice a consumer is making and in fact i think that directing our attention toward how the end user is behaving is it's the wrong place to put the spotlight you know what i mean like this is kind of where we've got to be where you realize like you know all of us we're you know as consumers obviously you and i are not just consumers with regard to publishing we work in the industry in our own way but um like we are operating and any reader who's buying books is operating within a framework set by other people or set by other institutions. Mm-hmm. And this is how that framework takes shape. And I think that this is where the you know any real resistance needs to get met. Like we could all, yeah. everyone listening to the show could cancel every Amazon purchase and every subscription they've got tomorrow. And that wouldn't hold a candle to this kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know, I, I get fired up about um, the way these big systems work in relation to how the people who are always trying being tried to held being held accountable are end users, you know, it's readers, and it's like I just I don't know I, I think that that's the wrong place, and I think that this is the kind of thing that really needs pushing. Yeah, on. and I mean, and we can show we can use our wallets to show yeah. where you know to sh- to show what we want, right? We can buy midlist authors from the big five. We can support small um, small publishers and yeah. small creators. But like, what this is going to do is it's going to drive small publishers to Amazon. Is yeah. what it's going to do yeah. because Amazon has a POD um, service built right in. It's very user friendly. Um, the you know the books will be sold far cheaper than anywhere else and that's what it's going to do so like it's driving people to amazon also well it's like it's you know there's it's that logic of um 
you know, vote with your wallet, you know, like make your voice heard with your spending habits. And it's like if you believe that as like a real political force, it's like worth asking, like, guess who there's a whole bunch of people in the world who don't want what you want and have way bigger wallets than you. And they're, <laughs> and they're the ones like creating this kind of you know what I mean? Like it's we have to kind of get past that that kind of framework and i think that you're right like the ramification here is that it's going to strengthen you know amazon's position it's going to strengthen you know it's going to be worse for um it's going to be worse for the parties i think that you and i and most of our listeners would like to see succeed yeah one thing i am excited about that baker and taylor is doing besides like shutting down this important part of the industry um, is that they're shutting this down to extend their efforts into library services and community uh, literacy initiatives. So maybe we'll see some really beautiful good come out of that. Um, but focusing on the retail side, I am really concerned about the implications. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess our next thing is sort of these two things that we're going to talk about don't necessarily connect on their face, but they do kind of speak to a trend that you and I have both started kind of noticing with how publishers, especially with regard to political nonfiction, um, how they're kind of thinking about their books. And like the first thing um, we want to look at is, and this was a story that I saw everyone kind of pass around in in Glee, right? <laughs> um, is that, and you almost certainly saw this, but Woody Allen tried to shop a memoir. Um, Nobody bought over, it. <laughs> over like the last little stretch of time. And it went really poorly. Um, no one bought it. No one from the report in here in the New York Times. It sounds like a lot of presses didn't even read it. Um, and it's I guess they you know, it wasn't pitched. It wasn't pitched very widely. And they eventually kind of shut down the idea. Obviously, I think you and I would agree that Woody Allen should not be paid a ton of money for a memoir. Um and we can also see that this would be the kind of book that under other circumstances and very recently would have gotten a huge sum of money, right? Like this is the kind of book that publishers used to love. Um, but the reason for why no one touched it is instructive in a lot of ways and I think not necessarily what we would want to see. So like for instance, we've got this line here from the New York Times article that says, some publishing executives use the word toxic when describing the challenges of working with Allen in the current environment knowing that while he remains a significant cultural figure, the commercial risks of releasing a memoir by him were too daunting. And then there's one other line, you know, here, you know, that says, um, you know, this is from, you know, here he's quoted, you know, Tim Gray, senior vice president and the awards editor at Variety, um, which is a, you know, entertainment magazine. He says, personally, I don't foresee any work in his future, said Tim Gray. However, it's possible that history will be kinder to Woody Allen than the current moment seems to be. He added that Hollywood loves a com- loves comeback stories. Ingrid Bergman, Charlie Chaplin, and Elizabeth Taylor were each denounced on the floor of Congress for their private lives, but were eventually welcomed with open arms by Hollywood and the public. So, all of that really worries me. <laughs> um, not because the end result here, which is that Woody Allen doesn't necessarily, you know, doesn't get a book deal, and I guess we should throw in the caveat yet, you know what I mean? Like, who knows what will happen, but... It's that the rationale for turning him down is clear, clearly seems to be based on the environment, right? It's like publishers are putting their finger in the wind and saying, readers don't want this right now, right? There's the Me Too movement, which too often, I think, is looked at in terms of like commercial viability. Like mm-hmm. it's looked at as something like, oh, well, we can't sell that book. It's the it's in the it's a Me Too, you know, thing. And as opposed to like being an actual 
discussion and movement about people's lives, you know? And it's, I don't like so the situation where the reason, where the, these sorts of choices that I think you and I would both agree are moral, where they would get pushed on to what publishers are reading as consumer behavior based on trends and env- like the use of environment, I think is really uh, instructive here. Yeah. Like it sort of creates this idea that the reason it's bad to publish Woody Allen is not because Woody Allen is a bad guy. It's because reader, like there would be blowback. There would be, you know, toxic, you know, it would be toxic to work with them. People wouldn't like it. You know, it would be bad press. They're couching it in terms of taste rather than morality. Which, you know, and and like I understand, you know, some people listening to this will might, you know, might say, well, it's smart for publishers to do that because they're because they're they're selling to an audience and they have to take into account audience taste. But what what is the missing part of this equation is that publishers are tastemakers. That's the thing. right? (laughs) I think that that is such a crucial point. And we. I don't know, like that one, it's so basic, like this idea that um, publishers are, they're the ones showing you the books, right? Right. When you go to a bookstore and you look at the table of things that you might want to buy, those are books that publishers, you know, decided to buy, decided to put on the table and have presented you with choices. Like you as the consumer actually have way less to do or to say in which books get published than publishers do. And because of As that... As per our last exa- conversation. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Like, and because... Um, and so publishers, whether they like it or not, and it seems like lately they don't like it, their, part of their job is cultivating the scene, right? Part of their job is saying, this is what's good. Even if you don't know it yet, this is what, you know, we think is worth your time. And as, you know professional editors or reviewers or people who have been hired into this job because we have expert literary taste you know part of the job as i see it in being working at a publisher is being equipped to make decisions on what should be published and what shouldn't it shouldn't simply be the job where you look at the crowd and say okay what do people want and how can we purely react to, to, to that right. you know we you set the reaction right like it's your framework it's not something where you get your all of your acquisitions decisions made from people, but that trend I think is slipping that direction. And like I think a lot about, you know, I right now is kind of a critical time for me on my on my list, especially in terms of the nonfiction I publish, because um, you know I do a lot of political nonfiction from um, not necessarily all straight political books, but a lot of stuff that kind of dabbles in. Um, you know, leftist theory as it relates to culture, lots of things, then the hook here is that lots of things that people might be interested around an election. Right. Right. And obviously, we've got one next year that is a really, it presents a really interesting um, publishing marketplace, you know, because theoretically, you know, the common logic would say that people are going to be interested in politics, you know, next year, like in a way that, you know, maybe they aren't this year. Like, for instance, 2016 was a huge book buying year Mm -hmm. for political nonfiction. 2017 wasn't because everyone was depressed, you know, and (laughs) like really, no, I laugh, but it's it's true. No, that's true. Like those big those big politics books that we saw kind of dominate the marketplace, they sort of tanked the year, you know, that stopped happening because and the point is that people's attentions, you know, move. But one thing I've been hearing a lot in the pitching, you know, as sort of a general trend from big houses, from small houses, is that they still want to kind of push some of that responsibility of setting the, you know, the cultural pace onto the, you know, the people doing the buying. Like, for instance, I've heard I've heard a lot that from editors as rationale for turning something down, which, you know, take as you will. Maybe they, you know, a lot of um, 
I mean, I think you would agree that a lot of editors just say things to get you to go away. You know what I mean? Like sometimes the rationale you get is not necessarily the actual thing. But like if you take people at their word, something something I've heard as kind of a pattern a lot when, you know, getting things turned down is that we're not really sure where the electorate is going to be. And thus, we don't really know what sort of politics books we want to buy. So we're going to kind of forego the exercise like or like basically it's this idea that because they don't necessarily know how these things are going to play out, how the what sort of turns, you know, election season is going to take once we hit 2020. We don't know what kind of books we're going to want. And therefore, it's going to be hard to publish into that environment. So and to it's the pull same, this out yeah, specifically, yeah. you have had editors tell you that yeah. they're not going to take on leftist books because they don't know what's going to happen with the election. Yeah. So they're just yeah. saying that they're not going to publish it, yeah. which which is so. So first of all, folks, let's 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 focus on that for a moment, because that is a huge deal. What that what that means is that this is large publishers declining to represent an entire like a huge side of the political spectrum well, because they don't know like what people are going to believe well so it's less it's almost like it's less of a ideological i mean i think that you probably could make an ideological argument um but for the purposes of this conversation i think instead it's that they see the various strands of political thought that are going to run into competition with each other this next year mm-hmm. as like readerships and market trends, you know, as opposed to like conversations that as a publisher you theoretically might want to have a hand in informing, if that makes sense. Like even if um, I guess maybe the corrective that I would want to issue is that it still seems to me that a publisher would want to look at a landscape and say it would be great to put out a book that provides people with the information they're looking for or that couldn't help inform people. As opposed to saying, let's see what people are already thinking and already talking about and respond to that. It's incredibly reactive. And it ties, I think, to this Allen conversation where we don't necessarily, like publishers no longer see themselves to the degree they used to as tone setters, as tastemakers, as people who can tell you what is good to read. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. Like I think that It is dangerous because, because it, gonna... it, with with Alan they're making the right decision but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, but yeah. then you extend that to shaping the conversation around the national election. Yeah. And they're pulling punches. Yeah. And that that like from an ideological state, right? Like that is deeply deeply troubling and like we wonder why we as a country have been sliding into fascism well, it's just for like, the last several years it's just that we don't and you see this with um and it's it's not the same exact thing but you do see this kind of like with with news networks where it's like they feel you know they sort of respond to what they're seeing as opposed to giving a like, take like as like, for instance, when I think of, like, the 2016 election, one of the lasting images for me during that whole year and that cycle was, like, as Trump gained steam, suddenly, if you, like, turned on CNN, there was always a Trump pundit on every desk mm-hmm. show, right? He got, you know, every single time you got, and as he, you know, became more popular and kind of surged through the Republican primary, like, his perspective became the one they wanted to sell more and more right. because they knew that it was kind of gain. So it was, like, they were actually, rather than reflecting as they thought they were doing this, like, well, people want this. I guess we'll give them this. They were actually 
aiding it. You know what I mean? Like they became part of it in a way that I don't think. Yeah, in a way they don't think they planned to, and it's again, it's those are somewhat disparate thoughts. But I do think that this idea that we should base acquisitions on the environment abdicates the responsibility publishers have for shaping that environment. Yeah, and to be clear, we're not saying that. You know, the environment isn't something to pay attention to. Like, clearly, it's like mix. you should yeah. be oh, yeah. responding to like if you're like, oh, wow, the there's a lot of Nazis in the United States right now. Like maybe maybe like it from a tastemaker and from a moral standpoint, you should say maybe we should publish a few more books about how Nazis are bad, you know, like and and but it comes. But you see how like that decision takes into account the readership, but does so in a way that that understands that publishing and that books really can change the world and you know and that they that that this particular publisher or these particular people have a point of view and so you know we joke all the time about how like simon and schuster (laughs) like makes all these like bad political decisions and then they like get in trouble and then they cancel you know milo's book or whatever um and i think when we're not taking into account like the position of the publishers or the or the publisher is abdicating yeah. their responsibility therein like there's always yeah. going to be that kind of like the jokes now about how yeah. simon and schuster is racist yeah. you know and like simon and schuster is a gigantic corporate organization that publishes a lot of really amazing books and it's huge and a ton of wonderful people work there and you know a, a lot of writers work there and I feel like what that does is it it really diminishes the other voices that we see from houses like this when you're able to point to big mistakes because people aren't willing to take a stand and say, no, 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 this is this is something that we need to take a chance on because it's something people need to hear. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think that's right. I think that's probably, you know, the place to best leave it. It's just yeah. that there's there's kind of, a, you know, you do have to sort of. And I think better publishing happens. Like, yeah, it's harder to do it that way, but better books come from that environment. And, like, that's really, I think, what most of this is about. It's like, and that would help that first conversation we had, too, is, like, publishing in a way that introduces people to writers as opposed to only publishing people that the audience has already heard of. You right, know? right. So let's move on to the Taloon It May Concern. Mm-hmm. I will read it. Please. I'm very excited. Yeah, no, I'm excited too. Taloon, it may concern. For almost two decades, I put my writing dreams on the back burner to support my now ex-husband's literary career. Ooh. How do we feel about that, Eric? Um, (laughs) He had two different literary agents in the 90s and early 2000s, each of whom did one round of subs for one of his manuscripts. When they both failed to make a sale to an editor on the first round of submissions, he fired them and ended up self-publishing his books. I am no longer in touch with him, and as far as I know, he's still unagented and no longer trying to get traditionally published. Hell yeah. My question is, is it okay to query his former agent? One of them's retired, but the other's career is taken off and now has her own agency. My first thought was no way, since he didn't part with her on good terms. But she's still a possible fit for my manuscript, and it's annoying to think my ex is still negatively affecting my life. If I do query her or one of her agents, they have a no from one is a no from all policy, so it's really four different agents in question. Should I mention the past connection in the query letter? 
I live in a small town, so the worry is if I don't, she might be like, hey, I used to have a client from there. Maybe you know him. And then I'll feel weird about not being up front. And I know that's getting way ahead of myself, but I need the clear eyes of the mighty loon to help me see the best path. Sincerely confused and slightly crabby in South Kakalaki. We all need the clear eyes of the mighty loon from time (laughs) to time, folks. Uh, So to me, um, this one feels pretty straightforward. Honestly, I think that you can feel perfectly fine querying this agent. I do not think that you have to mention that this person was your ex-husband's agent. That feel, It feels like information for the call. It does. <laughs> um, to be like, ha, 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 isn't this so funny so, that so, this person I used to be married to, uh, we both left on bad terms? <laughs> like, yes, this agent, like... You divorced him. Like, you also left on bad terms. Yeah. No, you I, know? <laughs> yeah. It's not like you're... Yeah. I think that you're probably super fine to go ahead with this, especially if you feel this person's a fit. Like, and I think, like, as a wider point, like, if we were, like, to extrapolate this to people's situations beyond just confused and slightly crabby in South Kakalaki, um, it's that I, I worry sometimes that people have too many hang-ups with querying. Yeah. Like... People, we get a lot of these sorts of questions and I get a lot of them privately and stuff where people are like, oh, I don't know if I should query this person because of X, Y, and Z. I think that in almost every case, the answer is it's probably fine. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, and you just send the email and like all these personal things that, you know, could happen as hypotheticals. Like if they happen, cross that bridge. And if they happen, it'll come at a stage where a person has already expressed interest in your work. And that's a good, that's a much better place to be when discussing that kind of stuff, you know, like, so I don't know. I think that you're fine. I think that you should plow ahead here and you can, you know, you can win the war. You can win the war. (laughs) And like, honestly, like from, from the perspective of like a woman agent, right? Like this is a really hard job to have. And I... Honestly, like if you're querying this woman whose career's taken off and she started her own agency and she's gotten really far and like honestly that is such a respectful power move to be like mm-hmm. yeah, I queried this person. You know, like even if yep. she doesn't take you on, like just know that like in your heart that like for, you know, you probably had to really put your career on hold and take care of somebody financially who like made bad choices yeah, and got impatient. Yeah, that doesn't get to set the tone for your career. You he know? doesn't. And like I like it's never too late and for somebody like who had to struggle through situations, you know, and and circumstances where it wasn't handed to you, um I could see pretty much any self-made agent or, you know, particularly a female agent really just respecting the hell out of that. Because this, like, you have these stories from the 90s. Like, you've wanted to be a writer since the 90s. And it is 2019 and you are going for it. And that is, that is like 30 years of a sustained dream and work. And like, honestly, just like, go get it. Go get it. And it's, you know, everybody, it's like weirdly incestuous in a lot of ways, this industry, even though there's so many writers and so many agents and so many editors. But like, really, like no one's going to care. No one is going to care. And if you get to the point where you're talking to this person and they find out where you're from, which is usually like when you're signing that contract and they're getting your contact information for like sending you money, um, like you made it on your own. You know, like you did it, 
feel proud. Like this is probably going to be way more awkward for you than anybody else. And it's probably only going to be awkward for you because you have that bad taste in those memories of, you know, sacrificing part of your creative creativity and and your dream for somebody else. But you know what? You're picking that shit back up. That's right. And it's and it's your turn now. Print so, Run is a podcast about empowerment, folks. It is. We're here. It's it morning. Is. This is our, this is good morning show content, <laughs> I think. So it is, and you know what? I I am just so proud of this. I am just so 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 proud of the person who wrote this because, like, hell yeah. Um. So on that note, mm-hmm. we're going to leave you. Thank you for joining us, Print Run in the morning. You know what I hate about this though? What is now that we've recorded? Like usually after we record, I can like go home and you know, stare at the wall until I fall asleep. Now you have to go now do I more have to, work. Like, go to my job, yeah, which yeah. is but less you can start, engaging, folks. You can start drinking whenever you want. <laughs> that is that is a God given right. Um Front run encourages responsible drinking behavior. At especially all times. in the mornings. Especially uh, for people who are of age. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Thank you.